Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Strength to Strength this morning. It's uh, six o'clock, and we're going to be getting started here. So we're happy to have with us uh, Brother John B. Martin, and he will be speaking with us this morning, um, a topic called Sing a New Song. So looking forward to that. So, uh, Brother John, if you're uh, with us this morning, maybe you can lead us in prayer and uh, then just move right on into the topic. Father, we thank you this morning that you gave us a song. It means so much to us in so many ways and help us to explore that this morning in ways that will help us to participate in that new song more intelligently and more effectively. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a lot of confusion on this subject. and. My tendency on any subject is to go to history, and uh, uh, people don't tend to do that. They tend to try to figure things out in the present, and I have a little diagram here. Uh, You know, if if you're only going to look at the present and try to decide where you're going, you can go anywhere from the present. Uh, It doesn't, you don't really have any sense of direction. You may have some principles that you try to apply, uh, but uh, you're left a little bit uh, uh, directionless if you're going to only work from the present. However, if you can establish a a time in the past, a place in the past, and of course, here's the present, you can with certainty uh, project something for the future. In fact, if you look at the prophets, uh, they didn't speak much about the future. They spoke significantly about it, but not, not nearly as much as most people think. Most of the discussion of the prophets was history. They were constantly reminding their people where they had come from, what people had done, and what the consequences were. Uh, And so the prophets were really, really anchored in history uh, with their understanding uh, for the present. And so we're going to be looking at some historical aspects this morning. We're also going to be looking at some what the Bible has to say about the subject. And I think we have a clear sense of direction for music. And and I think the church needs to hear prophetic voice uh, with a larger perspective than we've often had. I want to talk this morning about three things. Number one, four things. The first thing I want to talk about is the new song realized, and then I want to talk about the new song remembered, and I want to talk about the new song recast, what people did with it, and then finally, a new song restored. I don't know if I have time to get all that done, but we'll do as much of it as we can. I want to start with David, uh, Psalm 40. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, and that horrible pit Uh, They tell me in the Hebrews, that means a pit of noise. And uh, I think that has some real significance for what we're hearing in the present, a pit of noise, which people are calling music. Anyway, he brought me up also out of a horrible pit and out of the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. There are a number of things we learn from this statement of David. Number one, we learn what this new song is about. It's about salvation. It's about deliverance. That's specifically what the new song is about. Uh, And David was frequently uh, singing that theme, how the Lord had delivered him in the past and how he was trusting the Lord to deliver him in the present. And and, uh, that is the basic content of the new song is deliverance. Um, That's the unique thing about the gospel. We have a deliverer. We have a redeemer. The other religions don't have that. They have lawgivers, uh, but they don't have a redeemer. They don't have a deliverer. 
And uh, so that's that's the theme of the new song. Paul said one time uh, when he was in prison there in Philippians, he said, I know this shall turn to my salvation. You know, he talked about all these people who were trying to, uh, uh, were against him and were preaching the gospel for uh, their own benefit and all of that. And, and he said, look, that doesn't really bother me because I know this is all going to turn because I have a deliverer and this will all take on a positive meaning when it's all said and done. And so that's really the theme of the new song, God's constant deliverance in all kinds of life situations. The second thing we learn about the new song, it is a song of personal experience. There's been a lot of question about uh, too much emphasis on personal experience. I think uh, the problem is too much emphasis of the wrong kind. But the new song is about personal experience. Uh, David was constantly singing about his experience. But like the Wesleys, who introduced that theme probably more prominently after many years of uh, of a rather objective uh, singing by the church, which was pure praise, Uh, they sang almost nothing about human experience. You go to the Greek and Latin hymns, they're all objective praise to God. There's almost nothing of uh, a personal experience in them. And even Isaac Watts, who was always celebrating the, the sovereignty of God, uh, says very little about experience. The closest he gets is uh, when I survey the wondrous cross in the last verse, he says, we're the whole realm of nature mine. Uh, and then he talks a bit about his experience. But up until the Wesleys, there was a real hesitation to sing about Christian experience, but David does. But like the Wesleys, till he's finished talking about his experience, the focus is on God. It's not on me, it's on God. And that's the problem with personal experience songs. They get all wrapped up in how much I'm enjoying my salvation, how much joy I have, and how happy it makes me to be a Christian, and how wonderful it's going to be to go to heaven. It's all about me, and that's where it goes wrong. But the new song is a song of uh, personal experience. Uh, uh, Then the third thing that I would notice, and I want to spend just a little time with this, it's a song of praise. It's a song of exalting God. Now, those of you who are song leaders, I would like to call your attention to the fact that we have all kinds of hymns in our hymnals. And there's one kind of hymn, which I call hymns of instruction. They are, t- they are really not hymns of praise. They have their place in the church, but if we're not careful, they take too prominent a place. I've been in services already where the very first song they led was a song of instruction, take time to be holy, follow the path of Jesus. Those are good songs, but they, they should not be the dominant theme of our singing. The dominant theme of our singing should be praise. And even if it's about personal experience, the emphasis should finally rest on God. And so I'm just going to say this. I think like Sunday morning, I think uh, the first two or three songs should just be pure praise. I I think we should uh, really refocus on praise and be a little bit careful about these songs that don't have a lot of praise element in them. They have a lot of instruction and they're good songs and we need them. Uh, but they should not dominate. And we, we need to be, begin to think about what we are actually singing. And so David is singing a song of, of personal experience, and yet it's a song of praise. And the last thing I would notice about this is the new song has life-changing power. It has the ability to change the course of events. And uh, that, that's a very as- important aspect of the new song. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, some things in history. Uh, the song, God Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, uh, was written by name of uh, a man by the name of, um, <laughs> I can't think of his name right now. Anyway, uh, I don't have it written down. Uh, anyway, I can't, I can't remember. Uh, and I should, I don't know why I didn't, uh, didn't write that down. Anyway, uh, he was a, a Scottish evangelist, 
But most of the uh, evangelism that took place was was about singing. And uh, he wrote like 900 songs and uh, uh, he would start preaching and he would not preach very long till someone in the congregation would start a song and the rest of the evening was singing and people were uh, revived and there was a tremendous amount of evangelism took place in Scotland during that time. Um, <clears throat> and then of course, if you go back uh, into Israel, you have those situations where Jehoshaphat uh, was threatened by Moab, Ammon, and Edom, and he was uh, uh, at his wit's end. And so he calls all the people to Jerusalem. And uh, the sons of Asaph, who, by the way, were singers, uh, became prophets there and led the led the uh, children of Israel to go into battle singing. And you know the story, how that happened. We all know about the singing during uh, the Anabaptist era. Songs have always accompanied uh, revivals. Uh, they've always been a very important life-changing experience. In fact, it was said of Luther that his songs did more damage uh, to the Roman Catholic Church than his preaching did. And so uh, this is very important that we realize uh, that songs uh, really do have the power to change the course of events. And I'd like to talk a little bit about why that is true. So we want to talk uh, about some things from the Bible. The first thing I would note is that songs do result in supernatural enablement. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. And uh, years ago, we had uh, uh, a couple visit our home, uh, Decio and Eliz uh, Olivia. They were working for uh, Operation Mobilization, but they uh, were in the States and they told this story uh, about something that happened in the past. They were in the city of Atlanta and uh, there were several murders had taken place and the word went out through the city to, for people to be cautious, keep their doors locked, be careful of visitors. And they did not hear the message, and they were in a motel. They left their door open because they were expecting some visitors to walk in, and, and in walked these two murderers. And uh, they they commanded them to get get down on the floor. Decio did that, but Olivia did not. She was sitting on the edge of her bed, and she stood up, and she walked toward them singing a gospel song, and they turned and left. Now, I've often asked people, if uh, somebody attacked your family, what would you do? Well, most of us would pray. But I wonder how many of us would think to sing. Uh, uh, songs result in supernatural enablement. Jesus knew that. Uh, he sang a hymn before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think it probably was not <laughs> a short song. I think it's probably the great uh, Jewish halal, uh, which is Psalm 113 to 118. It would have taken quite a while to sing all of that. But uh, those psalms are about God's long suffering, his deliverance. And uh, I think Jesus sang those as preparation, a part of his preparation, along with prayer in the garden um, for, for the experience before him. He understood that songs have uh, tremendous supernatural power. Uh, <clears throat> a second thing I would notice is the reason for that is because it, we're told in Psalm 22.3 that uh, God dwells in the praises of his people. So if you're in a situation where you need the presence of God in a very direct and real personal way, the very best way for that to happen is to sing. And uh, that brings up something I want to make sure we understand, and that is singing is not optional. Singing is a resource. It's a resource just like prayer. In fact, I would put it right there with prayer. Paul and Silas sang and prayed in that prison, and, and there was an earthquake shook the prison. So uh, John Risser, Bishop from Virginia, years ago, had, a, had messages in our church and uh, he, I don't remember what he preached, but I do remember one thing he said. He says, beware of the boy who has no song. 
And basically, I think what he was trying to get across is it's not we're not saying that boy can't be a Christian, but he will be a handicapped Christian because this is a very important resource. It's a source of supernatural enablement. It's a source of God's presence. And throughout history, we see the tremendous ability of songs to change the course of events. And so songs cause God to dwell in our experience. The third thing I would notice about songs is that they open up the world of the spirit. Elisha one time was called to help uh, two kings, and uh, he said, bring me a minstrel. And uh, the Bible says that when the minstrel began to play, the spirit of God came upon Elisha. And going back to Jehoshaphat, uh, those men uh, that he was using for his advisors were, or the man he used was the son of Asaph. He was a singer. And uh, uh, Jehoshaphat calls him a prophet. It's interesting that prophecy is connected with singing. Saul, one time, after he was uh, out looking for his uh, father's flock, uh, uh, donkeys that had gone astray, uh, Samuel comes on the scene and says, uh, they've been found, and now here's what you're supposed to do. You're to go into the city of Bethel, and uh, you're going to meet three men. They're going to have three loaves of bread. You take those. They're going to have wine, and uh, then you're supposed to follow them. And he did, and he found, and Samuel said, and the spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you're going to be a changed man. Well, Saul meets these prophets coming down the hill, making music, and uh, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. We remember when Solomon dedicated the temple, the spirit of the Lord, or God's presence filled the temple so thoroughly that they, they had to leave. Well, when did that happen? It happened when the music began. You can go and look at all of this. So songs open up the world of the spirit. Uh, God is the one who created song, and I think he's especially attracted when he hears his people sing this new song about his, his ability to deliver. And then the last thing that I would notice is that songs open up prophetic insight and wisdom. I've been talking about that. Uh, it says, blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. Uh, that's Psalm eighty nine fifteen, And so, uh, not only do songs bring supernatural enablement, they bring clarity, they get, bring a prophetic understanding, like the uh, sons of Asaph that led those people into singing, going into battle. Uh, if, you, if you need power in your life, if you need direction in your life, singing is, is a tremendous resource, and I just want to make that clear. I also would notice, notice that music is very important to God. Zephaniah says, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Did you ever think about the fact that God sings? Uh, I can't wait to hear that. I have no idea what that must sound like. Uh, but God is a singer. In fact, when he created the universe, it says all the stars sang for joy. Um, and so, yes, God is a singer. There are 300 references to song in the Bible. Uh, many of them are in the book of Psalms, and they are not suggestions. They're commands. Sing unto the Lord. And uh, we Mennonites are really focused. If God says something even once, we believe we should obey. Well, God over and over and over commands us to sing. Well, why would he command us to sing? Don't we just feel like singing? No. Usually when we need singing the most, we don't feel like singing. The children of Israel are down in Babylon. They're saying, sing us a song. They say, we can't. We're here in captivity. We hung our harps on the willows. Well, that's when they should have been singing. If they'd have sung the Psalms down there in Babylon, they'd have been reciting God's uh, redemptive power, his loving kindness, his faithfulness. Uh, that was the very time when they needed to sing. So God knows 
that uh, we need that command. We need the command to sing because we often don't sing when we really should be singing. And so that's the new song, Realize. Now, I would like to talk a little bit about uh, the new song, Remembered. What do we learn from history? Uh, there was a group of homeschool students, they tell me, made a visit to the uh, Mayflower there at Plymouth Rock. And uh, <clears throat> if you've ever visited th that, that Mayflower, it's unbelievable how many people they had in, in that little space with their animals, <laughs> they, with their whatever cows and sheep and whatever they brought. And I forget how many you know, pilgrims there were. And I stood there, we were there just recently and tried to imagine those people all in that little cramped space. And of course they were on that thing for two months and I can't imagine the conditions they must've had. And so one of the children said to the guide, what did they do during all that time? And he said, well, they spent a lot of time singing. And then he said this, he said through the week, they were permitted to sing however they wanted to sing. They could sing harmony, they could sing whatever. But on Sunday, they were required to sing only melody because the, the, uh, the people that were on the Mayflower and their theological heritage said to them that anything added to the melody, whether it's, whether it's harmony, uh, whatever, uh, is a distraction. And if you want pure praise, sing only the melody. Well, that's interesting. Uh, there was a time in church history when people did have standards for singing. They had very definite ideas what singing should be. And so now, and I wanted to say this too, the Bible tells us to prove all things and hold fast to that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. And that applies to singing too. We shouldn't be singing anything that's connected with evil, that there's any reminder of evil. And we'll be talking a little bit more about that later. I'm going to quote that from the Amplified. It says, but test and prove all things until you can recognize what is good. To that, hold fast. Abstain from evil, shrink from it, and keep aloof from it in whatever form or whatever kind it may be. And uh, I really think that's, that's something we should think about in relation to music. Now, what I'd like to play for you uh, is what the church sang for a thousand years. Uh, it's called the plain song. You're going to notice it has no harmony. It has no meter. You can't tap your foot to it. And that was the early church's concern because the Greeks had metered music and they danced. And the, 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 the rhythm uh, was considered a, uh, a real stimulus for, spiritual, for a sensuality. And so for a thousand years, the church required the singing be unmetered and no harmony. And so we're gonna listen to a plain song. This, this, is, this is the music that the church sang for a thousand years. Uh, try to tap your foot to that.
Now, there were thousands of these songs written. They also were anonymous. They were not permitted to put their names to their compositions. Uh, uh, there was just this very definite uh, conscious effort uh, to minimize any kind of sensuality, any kind of pride in composition. Uh, this was supposed to be focused on God. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, now I want uh, to just sing a little bit of some another song. Uh, listen to this. Praise God from... Now, now, you can tap your foot to this. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Okay, that comes from Calvin's Geneva, believe it or not. And we think of Calvin as a very strict person uh, and very, uh, what would you call it, almost grim in his uh, spiritual uh, proclivities. But he permitted meter, uh, which is very interesting. Uh, nobody else except Luther was singing songs that were metered. And that came in at the Reformation. Meter, the church first allowed meter. Now, think about it. The church for 1,500 years had not permitted the use of meter in worship. In fact, when Queen Elizabeth heard the songs from Geneva, and, and Queen Elizabeth was not particularly a spiritually minded person, but she was still singing the plain song in the Church of England. When she heard Calvin's music, she was horrified. She said, these are Geneva jigs. These people down there in Geneva are dancing in their worship. And uh, she was horrified that they had permitted meter. Uh, now, I want you to understand, I'm not saying it's wrong to have meter. I'm not saying it's wrong to have harmony. In fact, meter is a very important part of uh, congregational singing because it helps to keep us together. What happened with the plain song, it was a little bit like the songs the Amish sing. You had to memorize uh, th that song so you knew exactly how to move through it together. Uh, you didn't have meter to keep you together. So meter, meter is, is very helpful. And of course, harmony, I think, has its place. But the thing I think we need to always keep in mind is the melody is the song. In fact, when the Bible talks about songs, it talks about making melody. And, and, and God says, take away the noise of your melody. I don't want to hear it. Uh, so when, when the Bible talks about music, it uses the word melody. Now, I know that song has a, that word melody has a broader meaning than what we think about. But still, uh, the church has always felt that the, the, uh, the worship was in the melody. And so what I'm trying to say is, if we're going to have meter, which I think we should, or we're going to have harmony, which I think we can, we need to be very careful that it does not take away the emphasis on the melody, that it all of a sudden does take on a life of its own. And that's, of course, the problem with the music today. It's almost, it's, it's, it's basically rhythm. If I go to a, into a store and listen to the world's music, it has almost no melody. I often say to my family, we're in the store, listen to this, listen to this song. It has no melody. It's just, it's some harmony with a tremendous amount of rhythm. And for the church to go down that road is just a wrong road. It, it, it's so different from what the early church, the early church focused on melody without meter, without harmony, just pure melody. And so uh, we're trying to remember what the church did for a thousand years. Um, so at the Reformation, the church adopted meter uh, and harmony. Now, the Anabaptists did not. The Anabaptists, uh, in fact, the Amish are still singing the plain song. Uh, they're not singing metered music. They're singing the plain song, and, and that has a good historic precedent. Uh, <clears throat> well, the change, though, came, started to come in the 1700s. You had the Wesleys introducing uh, songs of human experience, 
Then, then you come into the 1800s and something ha three things happened here in the United States to change the direction of music. The first thing was the Methodist camp meetings in the South. Uh, now you have uh, a huge crowd of people, thousands of people. Some of them can't even read. We're back in the early 1800s. There were no songbooks in those camp meetings. There were too many people. They, they didn't have songbooks and many people couldn't have read them if they would have had them. So there were songs composed for them to sing. And of course, if you're gonna have a large group of people sing, uh, uh, songs uh, from memory, they're going to have to have quite a bit of repetition so they're easy to learn. And after all, it's a, it's a, a mass meeting where you want to rally up uh, some real spirit. And so you, you give it a little bit more oomph with a little bit more rhythm. And then, of course, there are people who can't uh, sing the stanzas very well. So you have a refrain. So at least everybody can join in and sing the refrain. And that, of course, helps to rally uh, the spirit of the meeting. So that <clears throat> those songs were written in the early 1800s. That was a very different kind of song. And uh, people like Lowell Mason saw this and they said, if the church is going to go down this road with more emphasis on the rhythm and so much repetition, this will eventually corrupt church music. If Lowell Mason were living today, he would say, I told you so. And so what did Lowell Mason try to do? Lowell Mason tried to give us songs that were hymns that were just as easy to learn, just as delightful to sing, and just as enjoyable, but they were hymns. They were not gospel songs. The gospel song uh, generally described is any song that has a refrain. Now, there are exceptions. Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us is a gospel song. It has no refrain. There are some hymns that have a little bit of a refrain that we sing. Uh, <clears throat> Glory, Lot, and Honor would be a, an example of a hymn that has, has a refrain. So <clears throat> there are exceptions, but basically, if you go through your hymn book and count all the songs that have refrains, you'll basically have how many gospel songs you have in your hymnal. Well, that, that, was, that was a new kind of song, and, and I'm calling this uh, the new song recast. All of a sudden, there was this change, more rhythm, more repetition, more emphasis on human experience that does not direct the person finally necessarily to God, but talk about how wonderful it is for me and uh, how great heaven's going to be when I get there. Uh, that was the gospel song. And it was basically <clears throat> only about a couple themes. It was about salvation, uh, it, it defined as escaping hell and going to heaven. And then, of course, a lot of celebration about heaven. And so it's, it's not just the, uh, the uh, kind of music the gospel song has. It's, it's the fact that the text itself doesn't fit very well <clears throat> with an Anabaptist concept of, of singing. We need to sing the full range of our Christian experience. We need to sing about obedience, discipleship, cross-bearing, separation from the world, the character of God and Christ, Christ-likeness, repentance, humility, brotherhood, righteousness. Those, that's our theology. And for Mennonites to be singing only about getting saved and going to heaven when they die and how wonderful that all is, is a very narrow theology. And I think it helped to shift, you've heard me talk about the kingdom of God, I think it helped to shift the focus from the kingdom of God to a save me gospel, because the gospel song is about a save me gospel, it's about me, and it's about me getting saved and going to heaven when I die. Now, since that time, in that same genre, there have been some other songs written about, we have uh, uh, Down at the Cross Where the Savior Died, I mean, we have some songs now that, that do reflect uh, some other aspects of human of Christian experience, but basically the gospel songs are a very narrow theology. And then, of course, they have this questionable uh, emphasis, uh, overemphasis 
on the rhythm and on the uh, repetition. Well, if it had only been for the Methodist camp meeting, probably the gospel song would never have gained an awful lot of traction. But on the heels of that was the Sunday school movement. Now it had originated in the 1700s in England, but it flowered in this country in the last, in the, from, from about the civil war on. And uh, so again, you have uh, hundreds of children, can't read, no songbooks. And so what do you do? You write a song and after all their children, they like rhythm, uh, pretty rhythmical songs, a lot of repetition for help them to remember. So you have a lot of the same kind of songs written you had as you had for the uh, Methodist revivals in the early part of the century. At the end of the century, you have Moody and Sankey with all their associates. <laughs> Again, you have this mass revival and at first they had no hymnals, later they did. But at first you have no hymnals. So again, you're writing these songs that, and after all, it is a, it is an evangelistic crusade. So they're all about getting saved. Uh, they, they have more rhythm. They have more uh, repetition. And uh, so, so you have these three events through that whole 1800s. You have all these songs. And by the end of the century, there were thousands of these songs written and they began to come into the hymnals. And that's when Lowell Mason became very concerned. I wanted, I wanted to give you some of the songs Lowell Mason wrote, and you'll recognize them as songs we love to sing, Joy to the World. I, I challenge you to find a gospel song that, that inspires you spiritually and is more fun to sing than Joy to the World. Uh, Hark 10,000 Harps and Voices. Uh, I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord. Rise, Glorious Conquer, Rise. I mean, these are songs we love to sing. And that was Lowell Mason's purpose. I think Lowell Mason believed it was better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. So he tried to counter this gospel song uh, movement, this recast of the kind of songs that the church was singing. He tried to, to redirect that by writing a whole lot of beautiful songs that were hymns. They were not gospel songs. So, <clears throat> so that's uh, a, a singing recast. Uh, now, I'd like to talk about the new song, Restored. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn to Revelation, because we do have a copy of the new song in Revelation. It's Revelation chapter 5, uh, and I'd like to just read that. <clears throat> it says um, that he took the book out of the right hand of the hymn that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and 20 elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Now, before I talk about this, I want you to, to think a little bit about what uh, we have learned from psychology about what is the best way to communicate. Now, when I was in college, I had to take speech courses. I had to take composition courses. And all of them emphasize four things you have to do if you're going to communicate effectively. Number one is you have to have a clear theme. You have to have a theme. Okay. Uh, we've all heard sermons uh, that uh, after the sermon was over, if you said, what was the sermon about? Well, I don't know what it was about. There were a lot of good things said. Well, that, that's because the, song, the sermon did not have a clear theme that you could walk away with. Uh, so if you want to communicate well, you want people to walk away from the meeting and remember what was said, you have to have a theme, okay? It has to be a clear, a clear message, okay? Number two, you have to have repetition. Uh, and that theme has to be repeated over and over again so that it, it really is in your mind uh, when you walk away. 
Uh, what, but the third thing uh, is very important, and that is it has to have variety. You can't just <laughs> say the same thing over and over the same words. You say it in many different words. You have your three points, and each one of them is emphasizing the theme in a different way. And not only does it keep people awake, uh, the story is told of a man on the way home from his sermon. He said to his wife, do you think the people agreed with my message? Oh, she said they all agreed because they were all nodding during the service. So uh, if you don't want that to happen, you have to have variety. But the variety not only keeps people awake and keeps their interest, it also broadens the theme. It's looking at the theme from many different angles. And, and, and so you have the three points and then you have illustrations and you have quotes and you have all kinds of things that are just constantly hammering away repetitiously at this theme, but with variety. And then you have to have a conclusion. This, this talk has to finally wrap everything up in a conclusion. Now, the great classical piece of music do that. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. That theme comes back over and over in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, but in all kinds of different ways. And then, of course, there's a magnificent conclusion to his symphony. Uh, and, and the reason those songs are classical is because they have an appeal to, to all people in every age. I mean, there's something timeless about those, those compositions because they have those four things that they obey. And if you give a talk, uh, you're going to be the most effective. If you have a theme, if you make sure that theme is repeated, and then with lots of variety to give it lots of uh, breadth and uh, memory uh, and uh, interest, and then you have a conclusion. And people will walk away and they'll say, what was the sermon about? And everybody will know what it was because the theme was repeated with variety and was concluded. So <laughs> it's always interesting to me when the psychologists or the world uh, finds something out that God told us all along. <laughs> and so I want you to notice that this follows what I just told you, this, this new song. Uh, yeah, it's just interesting to me that it does. So what's the theme? Here it is. Thou art worthy to take the book. Thou art worthy. That's the theme. So what's the first, what's the first variation of that theme? Well, thou art worthy to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So the first uh, variation of that is, why is God worthy? Well, he redeemed us to God. He's going to make us kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And he's worthy because he's done all of this to the likes of us. So that's the first variation on the theme. And then we not only have a development of the theme, we, uh, before that, we have the development of the choir. It starts out with the four beasts and four and 20 elders. And now it says, and behold, I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb. There's your theme again. But here's the second variation. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So what's this now? This is telling how worthy he is. The first variation on the theme was why he's worthy. Now we have how worthy he is. Uh, so that's the second aspect uh, uh, emphasis on this theme. Uh, repeating, repeating the theme with a different emphasis. And now we have a development of the choir. And every creature which is under heaven and on earth, you see how this is building, it goes somewhere. The problem with a lot of music, it doesn't go anywhere. 
it just, especially the music you hear in the grocery store, it just goes on and on and on and it finally ends. It doesn't go anywhere. The music itself doesn't go anywhere. This goes somewhere, not only with the music, with the message, but also with the choir. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory. And we're having this repeated now again. And power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. There's the third variation. How long is this worthiness going to last? It is going to last forever. And so that's the final uh, sort of conclusion of this song. So it's interesting to me that the world, when they finally discover <laughs> something, <laughs> we go to the word of God and we find out that it was there all the time. And now the world is saying, even psychology confirms the truth of what God says. So I want to look now uh, in conclusion, I want to look at, at uh, a couple songs and show you why those songs are enduring. Um, I've said, you know, we Christians believe in eternal life and we say it begins now. And a lot of people have said, well, what are, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about being able to make decisions now that will still make sense tomorrow, next week, 10 years from now, 100 years from now. And if you look back from eternity on today, you would say that decision is still a right decision in the light of all, all eternal perspective. That's what Christianity is supposed to be. It is supposed to be an experience of eternal life. And I say, why, why can't we emphasize that in our singing? Why can't we be singing songs that are still going to be here a hundred years from now? Much of the songs, much of the singing that's being done today will be replaced by the next fad in music, uh, and uh, they won't endure. Most of the gospel songs will not endure. A few of them will, because they more or less do obey what we just talked about, uh, maybe not as well as the hymns do. But uh, I want you to look now at, uh, uh, can you give me screen sharing? Oh, yeah, he's going to put, share the screen with you. You have it? Can you see it? It's there? Okay. Yes, yes we can so see that. Good. I, I need this. To... We need to get rid of your pictures, which is cut. There we go. There we go. Uh, this is a very interesting song. Uh, I have uh, many, many hymnals and, uh, that I used in compiling my hymnal. And this is one of the few songs that appears in almost every hymnal. And you're going to notice that this song has been around a long time. 1787, 1799, I think that says. I, I can't quite read it. But anyway, the, the music comes from the 1700s. And of course, uh, Charles Wesley, by the way, didn't write it. They don't know who wrote it, but uh, uh, they have this wrong in, in this hymnal. But this music is old music. It's been around for 200 years and people are still singing it. Why? Well, it's because it obeys what I just told you. Here we have a little theme. So, me, do. Then we have a rise and a fall of the music. Then we have an expanded rise and fall of the music. Then we have the theme that comes back again, so, me, do, <clears throat> but it does something different. Here's your variety. It goes down to a so. Then we have this repeated with different notes. Notice the same pattern. 
Then we have that same thing repeated again here. Then we have an inversion of the theme, do, mi, so. And then we have the highest note in the soprano for a conclusion here. We also have the highest note in the tenor. So we have a double conclusion. And so in this little song, it does all those things that we talked about. It has a clear theme. It has repetition. It has a variety. It has uh, <laughs> a, a definite conclusion. And this is a song that you could sing, I think, almost every Sunday, and nobody would complain because it's timeless. And uh, I'm saying that that's the kind of music our churches should be focused on. It should be focused on the, uh, the timeless uh, kind of music that obeys the principles that, that the Bible illustrates in the new song. And psychology confirms uh, this. If you want something timeless, you have to obey those four principles. And that song does. Interestingly, Can you all see uh, Rise, Glorious, Conquer, Rise? Yes. yes now you want to notice that the composer is Lowell Mason. This is one of his songs that he wrote to, uh, to push back against the change that was taking place. And Lowell Mason was a master. Uh, he, he wrote symphonies. He could have wrote very complicated music. He could have done all kinds of things. But th these songs that Lowell Mason wrote, in fact, some people don't like them. I have a friend say, oh, Lowell Mason stuff is boring. I want something more interesting. But, that, but he did that on purpose. He could have written more complicated music, but his music almost, here's an accidental uh, sharp. That's unusual for Lowell Mason. And I'm going to tell you in just a minute why he put it there. Uh, <clears throat> but his songs are very easy to sing. And look in my hymnal, number 141, a beautiful song. Our congregation loves to sing. And almost any congregation without much musical training at all can sing it right off. It's just a very simple song. So what do you have here? You have... Uh, a little theme. You have quarter notes, you have a dotted note, and an eighth and a quarter. Now you're going to see that pattern repeats over and over again. Three quarters, a dotted quarter, an eighth and a quarter. Here it is again. Okay. And here it is again. It happens over and over again. All right. So that's part of his theme is, is this rhythmic pattern. The second part of his theme is you have a scale-wise movement here from do to me. It's not do, re, mi, it's do, mi, do. Then you have a uh, stepwise progression, so, la, so, all right? And that repeats. Here's your step, here's your scale-wise progression. Here's your stepwise progression. Here's your, uh, and, and also this pattern here is found here and here, okay? So you have that repeated. Variety, well, here you have a key change. Now, when we sing it, you don't think about the key change, but if you play an instrument, you immediately know you have a key change, and that's why this is here. Because uh, if you have a sharp on, the, uh, on F, uh, you know that this is in the key of um, G. So we start out with the key of C. It changes keys into the key of G. And if we had a congregation to sing this, I, I would uh, try to help you hear it. And then we go back to the key of C again. And then we also have the highest note in the soprano at the end, and we have the highest note in the tenor. 
So it, it, he has all that worked into this, all these theme, uh, a thematic rhythm, a thematic progression of notes, repetition, and conclusion. And it, it's a favorite song in our congregations. And here again, you could sing that song very frequently <laughs> and you'd hear nobody complain. But if you sang Heaven Came Down and Glory Filled My Soul every Sunday, after about three Sundays, you'd have people complaining that uh, they're tired of singing that song every Sunday. And so I'm just trying to show you that, that uh, God had a very definite uh, concept in mind uh, about music. Uh, the psychologists have discovered it. God illustrated it in his word. And I think we should take seriously a number of things that I talked about this morning in conclusion. Number one is we should be singing songs of pure praise, a lot of them, uh, just like the church sang for, for a thousand years. We should make sure that the emphasis does not finally rest on the rhythm. Uh, one of my friends who was chairman of the music department at Shippensburg University, where I went, she's an Episcopalian. Uh, she was not a Mennonite, but she said, John, she said, the problem with our music is the rhythm has swallowed up the song. The thing to watch with music is the rhythm. Uh, the second thing to watch is, does the song go somewhere? Does it have a theme? Does it have repetition? Does it have a conclusion? Does it have variety? Uh, and you look at the gospel songs and they violate almost all of that. A song like Blessed Assurance, uh, yeah, it has enough of this that it has become somewhat of a classic in the gospel uh, hymn uh, category. Uh, and if you look at the gospel songs that have endured, you will find that they have at least a, a measure of these qualities. Uh, the ones that don't endure are the ones that basically don't have much uh, uh, variety, don't have a clear theme. It's all about me. It has a lot of uh, rhythm, uh, a, a lot of harmony, but uh, it does not really uh, adhere to these principles we talked about this morning. So <clears throat> I'd like to conclude by thinking about the song, Eternal Father Went to Thee. Uh, the last thing I would say is you should have a worthy text. And it should be a text that focuses on the important aspects of our theology. And it should be a text that has uh, a tremendous amount of meaning in it. And the interesting thing to me is your more serious texts are attracted to your more serious music. It's the light music that attracts these jumpy little uh, uh, themes uh, that's all about me. And uh, your really, really good text Usually, you'll find it set to a piece of more serious music that obeys uh, the concepts of what a hymn should be. So I just wanted to think about Eternal Father went to thee. Eternal Father went to thee beyond all worlds by faith I soar. Uh, beyond, well, I better get it. I better turn to it in the hymnal. <laughs> I, I could quote it if I weren't on, uh, speaking this morning. Uh, Eternal Father, just a second here. Yeah. And of course, that's a, that's a piece of classical uh, music, the music itself. And it's interesting to me that as I get around, this song is just sung a lot by our people. There's something about it that they just love. Eternal Father, when to thee, beyond all worlds by faith I soar. Before thy boundless majesty, all I can do is stand in silence and adore. So this is the great other. He is so far beyond us that we just stand there in awe. But... Savior, thou art by my side. This great transcendent God actually is standing by our side. 
Thy voice I hear, thy face I see. Thou art my friend, my daily God, God over all, yet God with me. And it gets better. And thou great spirit in my breast, in my heart. So God isn't just standing beside us. He is he's in us. <laughs> Dost make thy temple day by day. The Holy Ghost of God thou art, the great transcendent God, yet dwellest in this house of clay. Blessed Trinity in whom alone all things created move or rest. Here again, the great transcendent God. High in the heavens thou hast thy throne, but thou hast thy throne within my breast. That's the kind of songs we want. Songs that really, really inspire us to who God is and the great deliverance uh, that he has given us uh, in, in, in the, the salvation that Christ brought to us. So uh, let's try it. My, th my points this morning were the new song re re realized. Uh, and I gave you the uh, things that we see in the new song. Uh, let me see if I can just recap them here quickly. Uh, yes. A song of salvation, a song of personal experience, but it does not stop there. It, it moves us through our personal experience to focus on God like David did. A song of praise. We should be singing more songs of praise. Be a little bit careful that we don't start our services with a song of instruction and have a whole diet of those songs and really have almost no praise. And I've been in services where there was almost no praise in the singing. It was, it was these instructional songs, which, like I said, they have their place, but they should not replace the praise. And finally, uh, the new song is a song of life-changing power. It changes the course of events. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you this morning that you gave us a new song. Oh, God, it is such a fabulous resource. It puts us right in the center of your presence, and it gives us, Lord, insight. It gives us prophetic understanding and uh, just opens up a whole world of life-changing events. And I just pray, Lord, help us to make sure especially that all our little boys learn to sing and love to sing, and our little girls too, that, Lord, I just pray, give us a real passion to see that music is not just an optional thing to inspire us. It's a resource. It actually does something when we sing. So just bless us all uh, to learn to sing the new song as you want it to be sung. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I should have opened it up for questions. Yes, well, thank you, Brother John, and we'll get to questions here in just a moment. Moment. So, yes, any of you who have any questions, we're going to be uh, opening that up here, and um, Brother John will be able to respond to those. I did have a question just to get started. Your last point was about um, the content of the songs, and I wanted to ask you uh, what you think of songs that are sung where the original content is, like, repurposed. If you think about the song, Faith of Our Fathers, it's not talking about um, the our forefathers who were, you know, Anabaptist martyrs. It's talking about the Catholic um, um, martyrs. And uh, just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, uh, a song has two things to it. It has the meaning the author intended. It has the meaning that we see in the song. And you brought up something important, and that is nobody when they sing Faith of Our Fathers, is thinking about what the original author meant. He was, he was a Roman Catholic, and he was talking about the martyrs of the Roman Catholic Church at the hands of people like uh, uh, Henry VIII. Uh, so, yes, uh, 
we have a lot of songs that we invest meaning in those songs that the original author didn't have in mind. I'll give you an example. We have a story to tell to the nations that will turn their hearts to the right. And we end that by saying, and Christ's great kingdom shall come on earth. That man was a post-millennialist. He believed it was during the time when everybody was going to India, India and China were opening up to the gospel. And he had this great vision that the gospel would eventually bring Christ's kingdom on this earth. uh, And the whole earth would be under Christ's kingdom. None of us think that when we sing that song. We just think about getting out there and telling the message and bringing light to people. And so every song has, like I said, the author's intent. And often we don't even know what that is, such as faith of our fathers. Nobody, nobody, but nobody, unless you're told, would have any clue that that's a Roman Catholic song. It's not about our, it's not about Anabaptists. It's about Roman Catholics being martyred. So uh, we, my answer to your question, brother, is we have a lot of songs in our hymnals that the meaning we give them is not the meaning. For instance, all of the Wesley songs, if you look at them carefully, they have that second work of grace, sinless perfection emphasis. Uh, now, some of them that has been taken out. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the one that was really, really, really that way, and it's been changed and recast. But uh, if you look carefully at, at Watts's music, uh, there's a tint of Calvinism there, uh, the sovereignty of God and, and a sense of eternal security. Uh, but we don't think about any of that. We invest it with the meaning that, that we see in the song. So I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, I have a lot, I could point you to quite a number of songs in my hymnal that if you knew the background, you'd say, why would you put that song in the hymnal? The writer did not mean that. Rock of Ages was written by a Calvinist. Nothing in my hands I bring. There's nothing I can do. It's all God. Uh, but nobody thinks that when they sing Rock of Ages. So yes, I think we should be thinking of songs in our hymnals, what those songs mean to us, not necessarily what the original author had in mind. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, Just a related question to take this a step further. So there's secular songs that are sung today, such as um, You Raise Me Up. And uh, that's actually secular and the Christian world has adopted this and and, uh, many people sing that. Uh, You're probably familiar with with the song. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Is that the same thing? But test and prove all things until you can recognize what is good to that hold fast, abstain from evil, shrink from it, and keep aloof from it in whatever form or whatever kind it may be. (laughs) I think we should avoid anything that has any mark of the world upon it. And uh, that song definitely does. And many of the songs that our people... Now, the only thing in the contemporary gospel uh, music that I think has been worthwhile has been their their return to singing scripture. And often the tunes that they're using are, are, are good tunes. Uh, so that was that's the one good thing in contemporary music. It has returned people's focus to actually singing uh, a lot of psalms and a lot of scripture straight from the Bible. Uh, but yeah, most of it is, is just simply trying to adapt. But see, people have the idea that the music is neutral. Well, let me do something for you. Listen to this little tune. Da 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 da. Now listen to this. Da 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 da. Which one would you choose if you were singing your baby to sleep? See that music itself has a message. Okay, and the music has a message. I dare the people who are singing rock music to sing that to sing their songs at a funeral. I, I dare them to do it. We're in a hospital. The music itself has a message. 
and the music of the world with its emphasis on rhythm and all the sensuality that that, that, that has brought into human experience is just inappropriate for singing in our churches. The emphasis should be on the melody. It should uh, not be on the rhythm and it really shouldn't even be on the harmony. It should be on the melody. When I think of joyful, 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 we, uh, now there has rhythm and it has harmony, but you don't think of any of that. You think of that melody when you sing it. It's the melody that dominates that song. And that's the kind of music we should be singing. Amen. Thank you for that. Appreciate those uh, responses there. All right. So opening it up here for um, questions. If you're using Zoom, you can simply turn on your camera and unmute yourself and um, go ahead. If you're not using Zoom, if you're joining us by phone, you can unmute yourself and uh, go ahead as well. So who will be first? So, uh, Brother John, thank you for sharing. I really enjoyed that. And I liked your point about <clears throat> music having um, power and, and, and bringing the presence of God to, to us. And uh, I like to hear <clears throat> that in the story of the captives in Haiti, one thing they did a lot was singing. And uh, even the captors noticed when they weren't singing. I remember hearing that from somebody. Another situation... I remember hearing about was a group of people singing on a street and they were <clears throat> in between songs. They were, I'm not sure if they're transi transitioning to something else or what was going on, but a person was walking down the street with, they, they noticed a knife and uh, they noticed his very unusual behavior, almost maybe demonic. And he seemed like he was there to attack and <clears throat> threatened them and they weren't sure what to do so one of them just said let's sing Jesus loves me so they all together sang Jesus loves me and that whole demeanor just immediately changed and he almost seemed apologetic and it's it's amazing to see how song has power in the spiritual world yeah and I think we non-resistant people should not forget that when we get into situations where we are threatened with violence. Uh, I'm not sure how many people would have done what Olivia did, uh, but she stood up. In fact, she was singing, Jesus loves me. That's what she sang. Uh, yeah. So if, if you're, if we're often asked, well, what would you do if someone attacked your family? Well, keep in mind, you should sing. John, thanks for sharing. I really, really enjoyed um, your presentation this morning. I had a question. Maybe this is on a little different subject. Um, what are your thoughts on musical instruments in worship? And maybe even historically, um, you know, why didn't the early church use instruments being, you know, the, they would have used instruments in Old Testament worship? Do you know why? why well, e even in Old Testament worship, musical instruments were, and I'm not sure the reason for this, but they were used only in temple worship. They were not used in synagogue worship. Synagogue worship was always a cappella. And the early church basically copied the synagogue uh, worship uh, uh, format. And so the early church, yes, the instruments were banned. Uh, uh, and they were actually up until uh, the Reformation. Pretty, well, no, wait, no, the Roman Catholic Church had adopted them. My comment about musical instruments is a practical one. Uh, <clears throat> if you bring musical instruments into the service, 
Alice Parker, who wrote many of the song uh, arrangements for Robert Shaw Corral, said when she first heard our people sing, she was amazed that that ordinary people could sing the kind of music we sing. And she uh, actually published an article, and I have it with me. I, it would take me a little while to read it to you. In the Gospel Herald, she tried to figure out why this singing tradition has persisted among the Mennonites. And she had various observations. One of her observations was there was no instruments. She said, when you introduce an instrument into worship, the instrument takes part of the responsibility for the sound. The congregation takes less. The instrument keeps gaining. The congregation keeps losing. And I saw that with my own eyes in churches in my lifetime that had a cappella singing that brought in a piano. And you go there 30 years later, and almost everybody's singing melody. The four-part singing is gone. Many of the people aren't singing at all. Uh, the instrument uh, is dominating. And so to me, it's a practical. In fact, we had a German lady uh, attending our church for a while, and she analyzed this. And she said, look, you have to choose. Are you going to sing a cappella? Are you going to have instruments? If you're going to have instruments, you're going to lose the vocal uh, participation of the congregation. So my argument is a practical one. I want musical instruments banned from public worship. Makes sense. Thank you. Thank you, Larry, for the question. And who will be next? Brother John, I was curious about the song Once for All. Is that a Calvinistic song? You won't find it in my hymnal. <laughs> if that tells you, yes, it is. Definitely. In fact, I was surprised that that found its way into uh, the church hymnal. The once for all in the Bible is talking about Jesus' sacrifice once for all. It's not it, that he only had to do it once. It's not talking about an experience that we have once for all. Yeah, we need to really be careful about the, uh, the theology of our singing. Uh, it's amazing sometimes what we sing. And then we need to be careful about the music and the text. Listen to this one. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful. Is that how you want to sing about sin? That it's a frolic? That it's a lark? That music does not fit that text. Or this one, down at the cross, where am I? Is that how you want to sing about the cross? Or do you want to sing, when I survey? How do you want to sing about the cross? Uh, we have some very interesting uh, combinations of music and text sometimes, where the music, <laughs> uh, the music is sometimes saying uh, uh, something very frivolous, and we're trying to sing about a serious text. Okay, well, it's uh, been great to be together here. I think we'll be um, wrapping this up. Thank you again, Brother John, for sharing uh, this morning. So we're going to have a few announcements here and um, then hope to see you all again uh, the next time. So the meeting this morning was recorded. We plan to make this available um, on our website. And if you're a part of our uh, messaging groups or our email list, uh, you'll be getting a notice uh, when this is available. Uh, if you don't already get our um, mailing list, uh, if you don't already get our emails, you can sign up for that at our website, which is strengthtostrength.org. Or you can request that at, uh, by emailing us at contact at strengthtostrength.org. 
So we have this meeting every other week, uh, except uh, occasionally we have a bonus talk. And in fact, we do have a bonus talk scheduled for next week. Uh, usually we have one brother on at a time. Uh, next week, we plan to have four brothers on to talk about kingdom opportunities in 2022. So four brothers will be talking about what they're doing for outreach in this coming year. Uh, different uh, initiatives and organizations that they represent. So uh, you're all welcome to join us for that. And I think that uh, concludes it, unless there's any further comments, I think we'll uh, wrap this up. Uh, yes, I did have one question. Um, Brother John, did you have a link to that plain song or um, something somewhere where you could listen to that better? It came off the internet. I don't have the link, uh, but you can find them on the internet. Yeah. Okay, thank you. All right, thanks again for all of you joining us this morning and I uh, hope to see you next week and uh, Lord bless your week. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. <laughs>